we need to have mental health at that epicenter and not make it an afterthought or a whispered topic. Welcome to Conversations in Care, a special series of the next big thing in health where we come together to have honest and heartfelt conversations about the defining issues in healthcare. I'm your host, Robert Trainum, Executive Vice President here at AHIP. If you'd like to watch the video episode of our discussion, head to YouTube and search for AHIP coverage or check the show notes for links. Come on in. I'm here with Cara McNulty, President of Behavioral Health and Mental Well-Being at CVS Health to understand what programs, conversations, and commitments we need to be focused on to raise awareness around and improve mental health, especially among adolescents. Before we begin, I'd like to forewarn you of a serious subject matter we cover in this episode, including self-harm and suicide. If you or a loved one are seeking help, please dial 988 for immediate support. So I want to know two things. First and foremost, your favorite Prince song, and do you really like purple? Okay, easy. I love purple. Okay. Uh, Favorite Prince song. I mean... I mean, Purple Rain, we got no. 1999. Cream. Cream. Okay. I mean, I'm going old No, school. no, you're, I mean, that's like I'm, circa 1982, 83. Yep, yep, I'm going. You know, it's funny because I think the Michael Jackson, Madonna, Prince, Tina Turner are probably, Grateful Dead, are probably like like just profound music. Like it, to me, it yeah. just speaks to me on so many different levels. Um, you know, I think we talked about this before, but Prince, in my mind, is, you know, gone too soon in many ways. Totally gone too soon. And Tina, I mean, lights out. Talk about a story. Uh, let's, so let's talk about that, right? So yeah. Tina, um, in many ways, um, grew up the American dream in many ways, mm-hmm. you know, a success story in many ways. But she herself really struggled with mental health. Mm-hmm. She herself um, has openly talked about how she um, didn't have anyone to talk to, how she moved to Buddhism, mm-hmm. how she moved to singing, because at that time, and you can even fast forward to today, there wasn't anyone to talk to about mental health. There was a big stigma around that, right? right. So in many ways, she is um, a living, breathing example about something that I want to talk to you about, yeah. and that's mental health. Why is it, Car, that we really don't talk about this? You know, it's it's so interesting. We'll tell people how much money is on our bank account. We'll talk about our personal intimacies. We will share diagnoses of cancer or you name it. And when it comes to mental health, there is a stigma, a myth that if we share, if we share gosh, I'm struggling with anxiety or depression or bipolar, or I've had thoughts of self-harm, that people will equate that to being broken. Yeah. And listen, all of us aren't, can't we just buck up? Yeah, yeah. And in some communities, the word mental health or mental well-being is never mentioned. In many ways, it's a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. Right. In many ways, it is a sign of being broken, not strengthened. Mm -hmm. In many ways, yeah, I have so much money in the bank, or yes, I had 
this amount of, of, of incidences, you know, kissing my boyfriend or my girlfriend. But so that it's like these um, like proud achievements. Mm -hmm. But the moment you talk about being vulnerable, the moment you talk about not feeling okay, the more we start to whisper about it and we try to like hide it under the rug because of the stigma. Mm -hmm. So I wanna talk about some of the great work that you're doing at CVS Health to kind of break that stigma, if you mm -hmm. will. Uh, I wanna talk for a few moments about a study where as I understand it, 16.3%, roughly 17%. Um, um, let's talk about that number. What does that number mean to you? So when I hear 16.3%, I think, yes, that number equals a few thousand mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children, aunts, uncles, neighbors that were prevented of dying by suicide. Mm -hmm. we, we put a stake in the ground. We believe suicide in most cases is preventable. Yeah, you know, um, if I can be vulnerable for you, so I lost a really good friend of mine to suicide. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting, literally she was staring me in the face by saying, I'm not feeling okay. Um, I would say, Eileen, cheer up, you know, what's, what's going on? I'm just feeling blah. And the next moment she took her life. So with the benefit of hindsight, she was a mom, she's now a grandma, she was a sister and obviously a wife and a dear, dear friend. But it's one of those things where two things. One, I wish I would have had, I would have seen some of the signs that were staring me right in the face, screaming, screaming, Cara. But I didn't hear it. And then two, she wasn't able to say it right. in a way where I could hear it because of some of the stigma. Right. And first, I'm so sorry about the loss of your friend because Thank that you. that is a mother a friend, a sister, a loved one. And often we can't see it. Mm -hmm. And so we have, to, we have to help people understand what it looks like to like get in there and say, Eileen, how are you? Yeah. And I mean for the reals, not for the like, I'm good. Yeah. And we have to teach people how to do that and what to do when somebody says, you know what, I'm not good. Yeah. And so, we have, to, we have to implore people to talk about it because Eileen spent years likely suffering in silence when nobody has to suffer in silence. And our mental health is just like our physical health. I mean, we talk about taking care of our physical health all the time. You can't pick up any source of media without somebody talking about how we need to eat and exercise and sleep and what's good for you and what's not. And we're only starting to hear that about mental health. I mean, every day our mental health needs care and support and nurturing and feeding. And if we would teach that and talk about it, the Eileen's of the world wouldn't have to suffer alone. Yeah. Can you talk to us about some examples that you are working on at CBS Health to help the Eileen's and also to help the moms and the dads so that 16% gets higher and higher and higher. And by the way, congratulations for that double digit number. That's a milestone in and of itself. Thank but you. we always know that there's room for improvement and we always know that there's more lives to be to be saved. Oh, there's so much room for improvement. So we made a goal as CVS Health via the members we were serving through Aetna medical plans that if we really believe, which we do, suicide is preventable then let's hold ourselves accountable. And 
let's put out a goal and it might be audacious and it's risk-taking that we would reduce suicide attempts 20% by 2025. Mm. Well, in order to do that, you have to look at how we're talking to people, serving people, meeting their needs really differently. The whole ecosystem, right? Right, right, because it's not one effort, it's not one interaction. So we started with the basics. One, we really listened to people who had been struggling with self-harm, with prior attempts to say, what would have been helpful? What, What did you need? They needed not to have the barrier or extra steps. Mm -hmm. They needed not to have to muster up more energy Mm -hmm. when they had none. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at best practice and looked at how could we do a better job of assessing people no matter what they're talking to us about. So doing that brief check-in. So we implemented some brief screenings, the PHQ-2, if you you trigger on that PHQ-2, it's two questions, we ask you a PHQ-9. So we're we're getting up front, we're not waiting for someone to be in that self-harming behavior. We started there. Then we started looking at what needs to happen when there is the triggers of self-harming behavior. And we started looking at our data to say, what else is taking place? Is somebody in and out of the ER? Are they struggling with other physical health issues? And we started looking at patterns and then doing outreach. And then we deployed things like, once someone had been discharged from an emergency room for self-harm, Instead of sending them information about suicide, we sent them a caring contact. It's really simple. This is done all over the world that simply says, you are cared about. You are not alone. And here's some resources. The number of times people tell me, I have that postcard in my office, on my bathroom, in my bedroom, And then we continued to follow up with the resources, the care, the support that normalizes our mental health and having mental health issues is part of being human. That's right. So really making it so people don't have to do this alone. Yeah. Thank you. It sounds like, Cara, that um, one of the big steps here is normalizing the, the terminology around, you're not alone, mm-hmm. you're cared for. Mm-hmm. Um, please don't think that you have to make this journey by yourself. Mm-hmm. There is an apparatus around you that can really help you every step of the way. Yep. And what I'm hearing from you is that this is a journey, yeah. and so I'm sure it would be jarring for someone to receive, are you gonna kill yourself? <laughs> Call this 800 number. Right. Well, let's can we can we back up a little bit? Can we can we talk about why I'm feeling this way? Right. Can we talk about and so so you're thank you for making that point because I think that's incredibly incredibly important. I want to um, spend a few moments talking about employers and mm-hmm. and how they show up mm-hmm. um, in this regard because my bias is is that there could be a stigma out there by saying 
Um, listen, you use your PTO and you use your sick day if you have a headache. You know, if you have a major medical event, i.e. you fall down the steps, of course you should take a sick day. But what if you're not feeling great when you wake up in the morning? What if you feel like not taking a shower today? So in other words, there's, there's some other issues that might be going on, mm -hmm. and but it's not normalized to take a sick day. Right. Or, quite frankly, you show up for work, you're not feeling great, what's wrong with you? You know, do you, need to go, do you need to go to the ER as opposed to maybe saying, how are you feeling? Right. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. It's that check-in. How are you? Yeah. And I mean for the reals, not yeah. just because we're passing each not other. Not superficial. I mean, I want to know. Yeah. And I'm okay if you tell me you're not good. Yeah. And you know, employers... Because it's not okay to be inauthentic. Right. And that that's it. That's totally it. And if we think about the job and the, the tough job employers have, you employ this diverse group of humans, which is awesome. And it's about creating a work environment where people can feel themselves, mm -hmm. where they can, come up, they can come in as is, like take me as I am. And in order to do that, to create that culture, and we know when you have a culture of inclusion, yeah. you likely have a culture of diversity. That's right and equity, and a culture that people want to be in. That's right. So creating that culture of inclusion for employers means being really open about mental health and that it is okay not to be okay. Yeah. And that calling in or going home because, you know what, today just isn't a good day, often with depression, for example, some of the most beautiful days I experience are in the fall in Minnesota. People who have clinical depression often find the fall in Minnesota to be the hardest. Mm -hmm. It's a transition. So not assuming that what I experience is what someone else experiences. And when employers can welcome and be inclusive and drive that inclusivity around your mental health and well-being as well as your total health, they win. Right. I mean, they win. People want to stay. People want to give their the best they can. People are jazzed about the company they work for. I want to spend a few moments um, chatting about um, some other solutions. Mm -hmm. um, technology. Um, we understand that there are some guard, there should be some guardrails there. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, um, technology is um, open. Um, it meets people where they are. There is a sense of include. There could be a sense of inclusion and connectivity. And in many incidences, it could drive even more loneliness mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. How are you tackling this in your role at CVS Health? So we, you know, technology is such a powerful tool, and. With that power comes great responsibility. Great responsibility and some really hard reality. Yeah, yeah. So I think about the work we do with adolescents. And if you think about the impact right now on adolescent mental health and what we have seen during a pandemic, post pandemic, social unrest, all the changes in the world our adolescents and young adults have struggled. And, and social media, which has been a big form of their 
interaction and engagement and how they connect became a primary tool for connecting because they weren't engaging with their friends. They likely didn't go to school in person. Maybe they didn't get to go to that, you know, internship. You weren't, we were isolated. What we've seen is adolescents, young adults, Gen Z population who is spending three or more hours on a device a day is has an increase in depression and yeah. anxiety. And it doesn't mean it needs to be consecutive. Yeah. It means throughout the day. I mean, the average person picks up their phone 120 times a day. That's right. I mean, we are connected to these devices. But what we see is for adolescents, what they notice and young adults, what they notice on social media is the best of the best because it's what we That's it's right. what we put out there. You know, it's the best vacation. It's the best pictures. It's the best filters. It's every all of it. And you start to feel and these adolescents and young adults start to feel that, oh, look at everybody has it put together and Except I am me. so alone. That's right. And then you overlay LGBTQ and we even have a greater disparity. And so we are addressing this by one, talking about it, two, we work with schools, communities, employers, you name it, to not only look at what is best practice, but how can we empower that ecosystem change? So with adolescents, we developed a, a whole initiative where we talked with adolescents, we learned what adolescents needed, we looked at how to help them engage in this conversation, we wrote a toolkit for adolescents, for parents, for schools and teachers and superintendents, all different toolkits on, hey, how do you address mental health? How do you really make it an inclusive discussion? And how can we get these young adolescents and adults the need and support that they deserve before they're in crisis? Yeah. That's why we talk about mental well-being. Mental well-being is really addressing that holistic upfront, hey, your mental health is part of your total health. We've seen recently a United States senator and uh, in particular, but also some other influencers out there, particularly in Hollywood, openly talk about their mental health journey. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that's a good thing that more and more people of stature are talking about this in a way that perhaps um, individuals could say, finally, I'm not alone. Finally, when I open up my device or turn on the television set, I could see someone that either looks like me and or someone that I admire and respect. Have you seen a correlation there? Absolutely. And we not only need those famous or influencers or celebrities to talk about it, we need you and I to yeah. talk about it. We need the local pastor to talk about it. We need the sales clerk to talk about it because you might relate to somebody very different than who I relate to and we have to cast the net wide. You know, one of the things I share is I'm in this field, my husband and I have two kids. Um, they are 22 months apart. And when our second daughter was born, I'm in this field. And before I know it, this, this little baby is sick and she has RSV, which is a respiratory issue. And you worry about them not being able to breathe. Mm. 
And so I thought, well, sleep deprived. I have a two-year-old and this baby. I'm just going to hold this baby. I'm just going to hold this baby because then I'll know she's breathing. And I really don't need to get out of my pajamas because, like, then I'd have to put her down. So I don't really need to shower. And I don't, I don't need to eat. And in a very short amount of time, I'm not eating, showering, I'm not sleeping, I'm sitting on the floor in my kitchen, bawling, holding a baby who I know is breathing, and I'm like, she's breathing, and I have a toddler next to me rocking back and forth, mama's crying, mama's crying. I had every resource possible, every resource. Insurance, a partner that is in it with me. I'm in this field and I couldn't get myself off that yeah. kitchen floor. Yeah. What I needed was exactly what my husband said, which was, you know what, Kara, this isn't how this is supposed to go. I don't know exactly what to do, but we're gonna do it together. And, and then we got help. I had no idea what postpartum anxiety was. So the more we share, that young baby is about to turn 18. I can't tell you the number of times I share that story and someone makes a comment to me like, ah, oh, I have just gone through that or I'm going through it or, oh, you look like you have it all together. I'm like, oh, I still have anxiety, still treat my anxiety. I'm like, talk about for the reals. Yeah. But the more we do it, the more we normalize 100%. it. 100%. The reason why I brought up my friend Eileen is because, and you just share it with your daughter, is because oversharing in this way, mm -hmm. overly communicate, but also just being vulnerable. Yeah. And the reason why I think this is so important, Car, is because guess what? Breaking news. I'm human and so are you. Yeah. And so no matter what title we have, no matter how much money we have in the bank, right. it kind of doesn't matter. Right. What matters is, is walking this journey called the human race mm -hmm. and saying, listen, I've kind of walked in your shoes a little bit. Yep. Would you mind? Um, me sharing my story because maybe maybe you can learn from that or maybe we can walk together right. on, on this journey right and it's a journey called life it's totally it and if we do that and do it well my guess is me sharing that story you don't think anything different no. except like yes yeah that's what we need to do is people inherently want to support each other 100% they want to support each other. And the worst case scenario is when we don't know. Yeah. Because we want to help people. I know you wanted to help your friend. I know that. And so the more we talk about it, the more we make it easier for people to get care and support, the more we normalize, the more we make providers available in communities that represent the community the better off we are because all of us will have some kind of mental health disruption. 100%. Doesn't mean it will be an illness, but we will have disruption. 100%. So we talked a lot about the problem. We actually also talked a lot about some solutions. Real talk, how comfortable are you in that progress of 20% by 2025? Realistically, how comfortable are you with that? I'm really comfortable and that that's also scary because I'm really comfortable when it comes to the adult population and that's what we set that goal at. 
but what we saw is we weren't making progress on adolescents and young adults. I see. And so we are now saying, okay, what we do for, you know, average 30, 40, 50 year old, 60, is really different than what we do for adolescents and younger adults. And so that is where I'm like, we have to, we have to dig deep here because mm -hmm. it is different how we deploy initiatives and provide support. And so we're making improvements in that adolescent population, but that is the population that is experiencing the greatest impact yeah. in increasing suicide rates right yeah. now. Yeah. In many ways, I don't have the numbers to back this up, but it feels like that is the population that is under the most duress. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like just given so much in innovation, which is a good thing we already talked about, there's a lot there with respect to their own mental health and with innovation that could go the opposite way. Right. We haven't even talked about AR, VR, artificial mm -hmm. reality mm -hmm. and virtual reality. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about the shrinking attention span that is currently at 9.5 seconds, but it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. We haven't talked about how so many people, adolescents, think that their phone is their friend and so confides everything in this device and barely looks up and gives their friends eye contact. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot much more work to be done there. I'm editorializing. but um, From your perspective, Cara, the next big thing in health is? Oh, it, it will be where there is no, we don't treat mental health and physical health separately. And we all talk about it, but that it is, no matter what is happening, you're having a baby, we're talking to you about the changes in mental health. Yeah. You have a new diagnosis, we're talking to you about that mental health. And, and again, we talk about that, but we're really making it happen. Yeah. I would say the next big thing also is how we use technology and data to get ahead, to be looking ahead and to be planning that everybody's gonna have disruption. Yeah. But we're talking about it differently. We're acting differently. We're deploying initiatives differently. I mean, maybe we'll even use, you know, new technology to deploy how we deliver therapy and counseling. Maybe we'll use virtual reality to meet the needs of people in populations or in communities where there is a lack of providers. Yeah, it's interesting because let's say hypothetically you live in a rural area, mm -hmm. you depend on public transportation. And as we all know with public transportation during the weekday, it's pretty robust, but on the weekends it's pretty sparse on most part. And so I want to talk to a therapist on a Sunday afternoon. That's just how I choose to show up. But perhaps the therapist is not a physical therapist is not available um, on a Sunday. Can I fire up my phone or my other smart device and maybe do something via the metaverse mm -hmm. or AR, VR yeah. in the future. And perhaps maybe on the other side of that screen, um, there isn't any bias. Mm -hmm. There isn't any, um, anything there but just a loving, reaffirming, listening ear. Right. Who knows? Right. Who knows? Right. I guess my last question for you, Cara, is, is do you think that's during our lifetime? Or do you think this is like George Jetson 50, 60, 100 years from now? Oh, I think it's during our lifetime. Yeah. If we don't, invest in the mental health well-being 
of our communities, of our families, of each other, what do we have? We often say without health we have nothing. I would say without mental health at the core, our health is impacted, our economy is impacted, our relationships, our ability to strive and function, to find peace, joy, to grieve. We need to have mental health at that epicenter and not make it an afterthought or a whispered topic. We need to talk about mental health and well-being really differently. And I believe that will happen. I believe it is happening. Very well said. Cara McNulty, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.